Well, hello. Welcome to part four of the iRobot podcast, where I, Cory Doctorow, am reading to you the story iRobot. Uh, that was originally published in the Infinite Matrix magazine and is now a finalist for the British Science Fiction Award. It's been a great couple of days since you last heard from me in the back of a taxi, uh, incredibly jet-lagged and, and, and on the verge of uh, keeling over. I'm in the office now. I've uh, backed up my hard drive and filed my receipts and done all those things you do when you come back from a period on the road. Last night I gave a talk at the Open Knowledge Forum Network event here in London. It was very well received. There was a little panel of four of us, and it was a really good, vigorous discussion. I had a great time. I'm leaving for California in a week to go to the O'Reilly Emerging Tech Conference in San Diego. I hope you'll come up and say hi if you happen to be there. And um, tonight I've got a colleague come into, coming into town. You know, As you know, I, I quit my job at EFF on January 1st, but I stay involved with the organization as a fellow. Uh, my fellow... F- EFF person, Ren Buchholz, who's now doing some of the le- less enviable parts of my job, is in London today for a meeting uh, with the Digital Video Broadcasters Forum. So we're going to have dinner and debrief tonight, and he's going to stay at my pad for a couple of days. It's going to be great. The other thing that you should check out, speaking of cyber liberties, is Democracy. This is a new digital television internet-based broadcaster receiver that makes it as easy to watch television on your computer as it is to watch it on your TV, and just about as easy to publish it, too. So if you've got some video and you want to make a channel, it's pretty much drag-and-drop. The whole thing is free software. It's open source, and it's developed by a charitable foundation called the Participatory Culture Foundation, uh, on whose board I sit. So it's great stuff. GetDemocracy.com is the URL. All free, all fun. Have a play, and uh, let them know what you think of it. Here's part four of iRobot. Arturo seethed. He hadn't arrested the kid, but he had put a pen trace and location log on his phone. Arresting the kid would have raised questions about Ada with social harmony, but bugging him might just lead Arturo to his daughter. He hefted his new phone. He should tip the word about his daughter. He had no business keeping this secret from from the department and social harmony. It could land him in disciplinary action, maybe even cost him his job. He knew he should do it now. But he couldn't. Someone needed to be tasked to finding Ada, someone dedicated and good. He was dedicated and good, and when he found her kidnapper, he'd take care of that on his own, too. He hadn't eaten all day, but he couldn't bear to stop for a meal now, even if he didn't know where to go next. The mall? Yeah. The lab rats would be finishing up there, and they'd be able to tell him more about the Infowar bot. But the lab rats were already gone by the time he arrived, along with all possible evidence. He still had the security guard's key, and he let himself in and passed back into the service corridor. Ada had been here and had dropped her phone. To his left, the corridor headed for the fire stairs. To his right, it led deeper into the mall. If you were an Infowar terrorist using this as a base of operations, and you got spooked by a truant little girl being trailed by an RP'd unit, would you take her hostage and run deeper into the mall or out into the world? Assuming Ada had been a hostage, someone had given her those infrared invisibility cloaks. Maybe the thing that that spooked the terrorist wasn't the little girl in her tail, but just her tail. Could Ada have been friends with the terrorists? Like mother, like daughter? He felt dirty just thinking it. His first instincts told him that the kidnapper would be long gone, headed cross-country. But if you were invisible to robots and CCTVs, why would you leave the mall? It had a grand total of two human security guards, and their job was to be the second law of proof aides to the robotic security system. Arturo headed deeper into the mall. 
The terrorist nest had only been recently abandoned, judging by the warm coffee in the go thermos from the food court coffee shop. He, or she, or they, had rigged a shower from the pipes feeding the basement washrooms. A little chest of drawers from the Swedish flat pack store served as a desk. There were scratches and coffee rings all over it. Arturo wondered if the terrorist had stolen the furniture, but decided that he'd, she'd, they'd probably bought it. Less risky, especially if you were invisible to robots. The clothes in the chest of drawers were women's, mediums, standard mall fare, jeans and comfy sweatshirts and sensible shoes, another kind of invisibility cloak. Everything else was packed and gone, which meant that he was looking for a nondescript mall bunny and a little girl carrying a bag big enough for toiletries and whatever clothes she'd taken and whatever she'd entertained herself with magazine, books, a computer. If the latter was Eurasian, it would be small enough to fit in her pocket. You could build a positronic brain pretty small and light if you didn't care about the three laws. The nearest exit sign glowed a few meters away, and he moved toward it with, fatalist, with a fatalistic sense of hopelessness. Without the department backing him, he could do nothing. But the department was unprepared for an adversary that was invisible to robots, and by the time they finished flaying him for breaking procedure and got to work on finding his daughter, she'd be in Beijing or Bangalore or Paris, somewhere benighted and sinister behind the Iron Curtain. He moved to the door, put his hand in the crash bar, and then turned abruptly. Someone had moved behind him very quickly, a blur in the corner of his eye. As he turned, he saw who it was, his ex-wife. He raised his hands defensively, and she opened her mouth as though to say, Oh, don't be silly, Artie. Is this how you say hello to your wife after all these years? And then she exhaled a cloud of choking gas that made him very sleepy, very fast. The last thing he remembered was her hard metal arms catching him as he collapsed forward. Daddy! Wake up, Daddy! Ada never called him Daddy, except when she wanted something. Otherwise, he was Pop or Dad, or Detective when she was feeling especially snotty. It must be a Saturday, and he must be sleeping in, and she wanted a ride somewhere, the little monster. He grunted and pulled his pillow over his face. Come on, she said, out of bed, on your feet, shit shower shave, or I swear to God, I will beat you purple and shove you out the door, jaybird naked. Capiche? He took his pillow off his face and said, You were a terrible daughter, and I never loved you. He regarded her blearily through a haze of sleep grog and hangover. Must have been some daddy-daughter night. Damn it, Ada, what have you done to your hair? Her straight, mousy brown hair now hung in jet-black ringlets. He sat up, holding his head, and the day's events came rushing back to him. He groaned and climbed unsteadily to his feet. Easy there, Pop, Ada said, taking his hand. Steady. He rocked on his heels. Whoa, sit down, okay? You don't look so good. He sat heavily and propped his chin on his hands, his elbows on his knees. The room was a middle-class bedroom in a modern apartment block. They were some stories up, judging from the scrap of unfamiliar skyline visible through the crack in the blinds. The furniture was more Swedish flat pack, the taupe carpet recently vacuumed with robot precision, all the nap laying down in one direction. He patted his pockets and found them empty. "'Dad, over here, okay?' Ada said, waving her hand before his face. Then it hit him. Wherever he was, he was with Ada, and she was okay, albeit with that stupid hairdo. He took her warm little hand and gathered her into his arms, burying his face in her hair. She squirmed at first, and then relaxed. "'Oh, Dad,' she said. "'I love you, Ada,' he said, giving her one more squeeze. "'Oh, Dad!' He let her get away. He felt a little nauseated, but his headache was receding. Something about the light and the street sounds told him they weren't in Toronto anymore, but he didn't know what. He was soaked in Toronto's subconscious cues, and they were missing. Ottawa, Ada said. Mom brought us here. It's a safe house. 
She's taking us back to Beijing. He swallowed. The robot... That's not Mom. She's got a few of those. They can change their faces when they need to. Configurable matter. Mom has been here mostly, and at the CAFTA embassy. I only met her for the first time two weeks ago, but she's nice, Dad. I don't want you to go all copper on her, okay? She's my mom, okay? He took her hand in his and patted it, then climbed to his feet again and headed for the door. The knob turned easily, and he opened it a crack. There was a robot behind the door, humanoid and faceless. It said, My name is Benny. I'm a Eurasian robot, and I am much stronger and faster than you, and I don't obey the three laws. I'm also much smarter than you. I am pleased to host you here. Hi, Benny, he said. The human name tasted wrong on his tongue. Nice to meet you. He closed the door. His ex-wife left him two months after Ada was born. The divorce had been uncontested, though he dutifully posted a humiliating notice in the papers about it, so that it would be completely legal. The court awarded him full custody and control of the marital assets, and then a tribunal tried her in absentia for treason and found her guilty, sentencing her to death. Practically speaking, though, defectors who came back to UNATS were more frequently whisked away into the bowels of the Social Harmony intelligence offices than, than they were executed on television. Televite executions were usually reserved for cannon fodder who'd have the good sense to run away from a charging Eurasian line in one of the many theaters of war. Ada stopped asking about her mother when she was six or seven, though Arturo tried to be up front when she asked. Even his mom, who winced whenever anyone mentioned her name, her name, it was Natalie, but Arturo hadn't thought of it in years, months, weeks, days, was willing to bring Ada up onto her lap and tell her the few grudging good qualities she could dredge up about her mother. Arturo had dared to hope that Ada was content to have a life without her mother, but he saw now how silly that was. At the mention of her mother, Ada lit up like an airport runway. Beijing, huh? Yeah, she said. Mom's got a huge house there. Told her I wouldn't go without you, but she said she'd have to negotiate it with you. I told her you'd probably freak, but she said that the two of you were adults who could discuss it rationally. And then she gasped me. That was Benny, she said. Mom was very cross with him about it. She'll be back soon, Dad, and I want you to promise me that you'll hear her out, okay? I promise, Rotten, he said. I love you, Daddy, she said in her most syrupy voice. He gave her a little squeeze on the shoulder and then a slap on the butt. He opened the door, and Benny was there, imperturbable. Unlike the Unats robots, he was odorless and perfectly silent. I'm going to go to the toilet and then make myself a cup of coffee, Arturo said. I would be happy to assist in any way possible. I can wipe myself, thanks. He washed his face and tried to rinse away the flavor left behind by whatever had shat in his mouth while he was unconscious. There was a splayed toothbrush in the glass by the sink, and if it was his wife's, and whose else could it be, it wouldn't be the first time he'd shared a toothbrush with her. But he couldn't bring himself to do it. Instead, he misted some dentifrice onto his fingertip and rubbed his teeth a little. There was a hairbrush by the sink, too, with short mousy hairs caught in it. Some of them were gray, but they were still familiar enough. He had to stop himself from smelling the hairbrush. Oh, Ada, he called through the door. Yes, detective? Tell me about your hair don't, please. It was a disguise, she said, giggling. Mom did it for me. Natalie got home an hour later, after he'd had a couple of cups of coffee and made some cheesy toast for the brat. Benny did the dishes without being asked. She stepped through the door and tossed her briefcase and coat down on the floor, but the robot that was a step behind her caught them and hung them up before they touched the perfectly groomed carpet. Ada ran forward and gave her a hug, and she returned it enthusiastically, but she never took her eyes off Arturo. 
Natalie had always been short and a little hippie, with big curves and a dusting of freckles over her prominent, slightly hooked nose. Twelve years in Eurasia had thinned her out a little, cut grooves around her mouth and wrinkles at the corners of her eyes. Her short hair was about half gray, and it looked good on her. Her eyes were still the liveliest bit of her, long-lashed and slightly tilted and mischievous. Looking into them now, Arturo felt like he was falling down a well. "'Hello, Artie,' she said, prying Ada loose. "'Hello, Natty,' he said. He wondered if he should shake her hand, or hug her, or what. She settled it by crossing the room and taking him in a firm, brief embrace, then kissing both cheeks. She smelled just the same, the opposites of the smell of robot. Warm, human. He was suddenly very, very angry. He stepped away from her and had a seat. She sat, too. Well, she said, gesturing around the room, the robots, the safe house, the death penalty, the abandoned daughter, and the decade-long defection, all of it down to well and a flop of a hand gesture. Natalie Ju Judith Goldberg, he said, it is my duty as a UNAS detective third grade to inform you that you are under arrest for high treason. You have the following rights, the right to a trial per current rules of due process, to be free from self-incrimination in the absence of a court order to the contrary, to consult with a social harmony advocate, and to a speedy arraignment. Do you understand your rights? Oh, Daddy, Ada said. He turned and fixed her in a cold stare. Be silent, Ada Trouble, Akaza, Durana Goldberg. Not one word in the cop voice. She shrank back as though slapped. Do you understand your rights? Yes, Natalie said. I understand my rights. Congratulations on your promotion, Arturo. Please ask your robots to stand down and return my goods. I'm bringing you in now. I'm sorry, Arturo, she said, but that's not going to happen. He stood up, and in a second both of her robots had his arm. Ada screamed and ran forward to, and began to rhythmically pound one of them with a stool from the breakfast nook, making, du making a dull thudding sound. The robot took the stool from her and held it out of her reach. "'Let him go,' Natalie said. The robots held him fast. "'Please,' she said. "'Let him go. He won't harm me.' The robot on his left let go, and then the robot on his right did, too. It set down the dented stool. "'Arturo, please sit down and talk with me for a little while. Please.' He rubbed his biceps. "'Return my belongings to me,' he said. "'Sit, please. Natalie, my daughter was kidnapped, I was gassed, and I have been robbed. I will not be made to feel unreasonable for demanding that my goods be returned to me before I talk with you.' She sighed and crossed to the hall closet and handed him his wallet, his phone, Ada's phone, and his sidearm. Immediately he drew it and pointed at her. "'Keep your hands where I can see them. You robots, stand down and keep back.' A second later he was sitting on the carpet, his hand and wrist stinging fiercely. He felt like someone had wrung his head like a gong. Benny, or the other robot, was beside him, methodically crushing his sidearm. "'I could have stopped you,' Benny said. "'I knew you would draw your gun, but I wanted to show you that I was faster and stronger, not just smarter.' "'The next time you touch me,' Arturo began, and then stopped. The next time the robot touched him, he would come out the worse for, air, for wear, same as last time, same as the rose sun, sun rose and set. It was stronger, faster, and smarter than him.' lots. He climbed to his feet and refused Natalie's arm, making his way back to the sofa in the living room. What do you want to say to me, Natalie? She sat down. There were tears glistening in her eyes. Oh, God, Arturo, what can I say? Sorry, of course. Sorry I left you and our daughter. I have reasons for what I did, but nothing excuses it. I won't ask for your forgiveness. But will you hear me out if I explain why I did what I did? I don't have a choice, he said. That's clear.' 
Ada insinuated herself onto the sofa and under his arm. Her bony shoulder felt better than anything in the world. He held her to him. "'If I could think of a way to give you a choice in this, I would,' she said. "'Have you ever wondered why Unats hasn't lost the war? Eurasian robots could fight the war on every front without respite. They'd win every battle. You've seen Benny and Lenny in action. They're not considered particularly powerful by our standards.' If we wanted to win the war, we could just kill every soldier you sent up against us so quickly he wouldn't even know he was in danger until he was gasping out his last breath. We could selectively kill officers, or right-handed fighters, or snipers, or soldiers whose names began with the letter G. Unat's soldiers are like the cavemen before us. They fight with their hands tied behind their backs by the three, law three laws. So why aren't we winning the war? "'Because you're a corrupt dictatorship, that's why,' he said. "'Your soldiers are demoralized. Your robots are insane. "'You live in a country where it is illegal to express certain mathematics and software, "'where state apparatchiks regulate all innovation, "'where inconvenient science is criminalized, "'where whole avenues of experimentation and research are shut down in the service "'of a half-baked superstition about the moral qualities of your three laws, "'and you call my home corrupt?' Arturo, what happened to you? You weren't always this susceptible to the big lie. And you didn't used to be the kind of women, woman who abandoned her family, he said. The reason we're not winning the war is that we don't want to hurt people, but we do want to destroy your awful, stupid state. So we fight to destroy as much of your materiel as possible, with as few casualties as possible. You live in a failed state, Arturo. In every field, you lag Arturo, uh, Eurasia and Kafta. Medicine, art, literature, physics... All of them are subsets of computational science, and your computational science is more superstition than science. I should know. In Eurasia, I have collaborators, some of whom are human, some of whom are positronic, and some of whom are a little of both. He jolted involuntarily, as a phobia he hadn't known he possessed reared up. A little of both? He pictured the back of a man's skull with a spill of positronic circuitry bulging out of it like a tumor. Everyone at UNAT's Robotics R&D knows this. We've known it forever. When I was here, I'd get called in to work on military intelligence forensics of captured Eurasian brains. I didn't know it then, but Eurasian robots are engineered to allow themselves to be captured a certain percentage of the time, just so that scientists like me can get an idea of how screwed up this country is. We'd pull these things apart and know that UNATS Robotics was the worst, most backwards research outfit in the world. But even with all that, I wouldn't have left if I didn't know that I'd, be called, that I'd been called in to work on a positronic brain, an instance of the hive intelligence that Benny and Lenny are part of, as a matter of fact, that had been brought back from the Outer Hebrides. We'd pulled it out of its body and plugged it into a basic life support system, and my job was to find its vulnerabilities. Instead, I became its friends. As it, it got, it ha, it's got a good sense of humor, and as my pregnancy got bigger and bigger, it talked to me about the way that children are raised in Eurasia, with every event, advantage, with human and positronic playmates, with the promise of going to the stars. And then I found out that Social Harmony had been spying on me. They had Eurasian-derived bugs, things I'd never seen before, but the man from Social Harmony who came to me showed it to me and told me what would happen to me, to you, to our daughter, if I didn't cooperate. They wanted me to be part of a secret unit of Social Harmony researchers who built non-three-laws positronics for internal use by the state, anti-personnel robots used to put down uprisings, and torture robots for use in questioning dissidents.'